The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. We're going to wrap up our series, Culture of Care, this morning. And, um, and uh, we have a little BOGO, buy one, get one. In this series, we've had five sermons so far, each of them focusing on an aspect of care and our developing of a culture of care. We started with perspective. We talked about why there is suffering, how God brings care through suffering, how we ought to think about it, and ultimately how God is the source of care for us and then through us to other people. We talked in week two about proximity, the importance of being close and nearness, of moving uh, inward and being present to visiting and to calling and to being as present as you possibly can. We looked at the nature and character of God, that he's the God who initiates. He's the God who uh, comes toward us. He's the covenant maker. He's the incarnating God. He's, he, he manifests himself in Jesus and then by a spirit and he moves into our hearts. And so we have a present God and we wanna be a present people as we develop a culture of care. Then we looked at preoccupation, the, the way in which pain has a way of preoccupying us. You smash your finger with a hammer and you're very aware of that finger. And so when we go through stress or anxiety or pain or suffering, we become preoccupied with that. And so care is a way of suffering with someone. That's what compassion is about. And so we want to walk alongside people who are suffering in, in, with that same preoccupation. And that requires some planning on our part because if we're not experiencing it, we're not experiencing it the same way, then we have to be more purposeful. In week four, we talked about priorities. We got a little bit more practical. We talked about situational triage and how different people react and how we want to help people and get them the help they need and what that looks like for us to discover that. And so that was an important sermon in this series. And then last week we looked at purposefulness, which uh, was also practical, but really had to do with us uh, being in this together, that we are many made one, but we are still uh, many made from one. And so we're all trying to do our part and we need every single person to engage. This is my shameless plea for everybody to sign up to be a part of the care team. There will be a place for you. And maybe this is like venturing into new territory for you. I know in the news, uh, past couple of weeks, we've been watching uh, these billionaires take their private uh, flights into space. And so we've been talking about space travel and uh, I have no desire to go to space. Julian, uh, our four-year-old, he's just, he's enamored with all things space. And so he, the thought that someone could fly to space, he wants to be there. And I am very happy right here. And maybe some of you feel that way. You're like, glad there's a care team. Glad I'm in a church where they're developing a culture of care. Grateful to be the recipient of that care, but that is like going to space for me. I'm not interested well, maybe it's time for you just to try something out. Maybe it's not like space. It's uh, not a hostile environment and you won't, you won't know until you try it. We tell our kids with their food, you gotta try new food because it might taste good. And you might be surprised how God's wired you for care in a way that you hadn't previously thought about. And so sign up, try it out. You're not committing to anything forever. Uh, see how God will meet you as you seek to care for other people and be a part of the structure that we're trying to create. So we talked about purposefulness and this morning, we're gonna end the series with two P words, prayer and practicality, prayer and practicality. And so I'm gonna have you turn to two scriptures. First, Mark chapter two, if you have your Bible, uh, go grab a Bible off a shelf. You're at home, you can get up, it won't disturb anybody. Uh, grab a paper Bible, it'd be awesome to have that in front of you and turn to Mark chapter two, and then also 1 Timothy chapter five, Mark two and 1 Timothy five. I have my coffee, maybe you have yours and I'm excited to jump into the scriptures together. So as you know, our goal in this series is to create a culture of care. 
uh, is about identifying and empowering leaders. It's about putting together a structure that allows us to have a system to follow through and to care for people in ways that we don't drop the ball and miss people. And to also have this series as training for people who want to be a part of the care team in the future to understand how we're wired, how we're trying to do care, how we think about care, what the scriptures say, and then the various ways in which people can get involved in the future. And so we're going to continue to add people to the care team ministry. And that's why this series exists. And so uh, went through all those other sermon titles and a little brief overview. And this morning uh, we're going to get into prayer and practicality. So it's interesting. Uh, we started the series talking about the importance of developing a culture of care during a season of growth. And as the church gets bigger, it's easier to get lost in the mix, lost in the crowd, be unknown and uncared for. And so that's something growing churches have to battle against. And so we wanted to be a church intentional about creating a culture of care as we grow. And it's interesting that in the middle of this series on care, we were hit with this new outbreak of COVID. And not only did we have the isolation of being apart again, um, but many of the people that we know and love personally in our church and then throughout our community and other churches and uh, friends, neighbors, they're, they're being hit with this disease and getting sick and being alone and being in need and, and, and being fearful and having relatives in the hospital. And so right in the middle of this, not only are we experiencing the need for care through growth, but we're also experiencing the need for care right in the middle of real-time suffering. It's impacting different people in different ways. Some of you are fine not sick, don't know anybody that's sick personally and churches online only and your, your rhythm's disrupted and maybe this is impacting you in a very small way. But for those of us who feel part of something bigger than ourselves, the people that we know and the situations that we're aware of, um, our, our hearts go out and our desire to help is there. And so we, we, we have this opportunity to care in the midst of suffering. And if it wasn't just COVID related, I mean, people are still having uh, the same issues praying for teenage children and walking through difficult situations of aging parents and sick relatives and people from out of town and accidents happening and, and people in rehabilitation. There's all sorts of things I'm personally aware of have nothing to do with this little Delta variant COVID outbreak and yet are impacting people that I know and love in adverse ways. And so in suffering, we want to be the most caring people and we're learning to do that. We're growing to do that. And we hope that you're growing along with us. We, we started to experience that this week, our, or not this week, but now it's been starting three weeks ago. And for over a week, our family, we got hit with, with a COVID virus. And here we have our, our 11-year-old daughter, Evie, she gets it first, and then Tiffany, and then me. And it was nasty. It was a bad little bug. Uh, we felt terrible. And we were the objects of care. Uh, Tiffany's cousin, Ashley, who was in town with her family for Tiffany's family reunion that was canceled because of COVID. Uh, we were sick. They were staying just a block away. It was a highlight of our year to be able to spend time with them. So we weren't able to spend time with them. And she uh, actually went and got all the vitamins that we needed, got us the whole medicine protocol, vitamin protocol, the things we needed to strengthen our immune systems to fight this and um, was so, so helpful and such a blessing. And so we stood at a safe distance on the porch and exchanged those things. We, we didn't know what we needed. We couldn't go out. And so care came in that form. We had people brought us meals. Rebecca and Angela brought us dinner twice. 
even in the middle of that, when we didn't know what to ask for or what help we needed, uh, an old friend dropped off Chipotle unsolicited in the middle of the day. I walked out on the porch and there's a bag of Chipotle and uh, didn't know who it was from or where it came from. And so we were just experiencing thoughtfulness, all the texts and calls and emails and Facebook posts of people expressing concern and prayers. And we got to be the recipients of that, the objects of that. And having known what that feels like, we want to continue to be those kinds of people to everyone who's suffering, not only in this particular season, but uh, in every season. And so let's continue to grow as people of care. Now, as we conclude the series, I do want to split up our time and talk about two of these prayer words, uh, two of these P words, prayer and practicalities. Uh, and I wanted to insert prayer before practicalities. I've been kind of peppering each of these sermons with the importance of prayer, but we haven't considered it um, by itself. And so I want to do that this morning uh, as we consider the power of prayer. So in order for us to create a culture of care, we have to create a culture of prayer. Now, Christ Church is a praying church. I I make no apologies for long public prayers before a sermon, after worship, at the conclusion of our time together. Like We want to be people who are connected to God, directing our attention to God. We want to pray together. We want to pray for one another. We want to devote time in our days every day as individuals and families to pray. We we are committed to being a people of prayer and having a culture of prayer. But I, I believe that we can't really have a culture of care until we have a culture of prayer. So turn to Mark chapter two, if you haven't already. I love this story. This is a, a famous uh, Jesus story from Mark chapter two. Uh, you'll be reminded of it as we read. It says in verse one, and when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's been healing people. And the word has spread that Jesus is now back in Capernaum. And so the whole town comes out. They find out where he is. They cram into the home he's staying in. They're at the door, at the windows. Everybody wants to listen and they're there to listen to Jesus teach. And so this is just one of those amazing settings with the incarnate God revealing the nature and character of the creator and the covenant maker. And in verse three, it says, and they, we don't know who they are, but and they, a group came bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four Men. So we introduced to these four nameless guys. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And this is, this is the fun scene. So there's a little bit of fill in the blank that has to happen here. First off, we have four guys carrying this uh, paralytic on a mat presumably with four corners, but they're part of a larger crowd. And this is a crowd of people who care about this particular man who has the inability to get Jesus's help. He can't get to Jesus, but they decide they're going to get him to Jesus. They have hope kindled in their hearts that there is a man from Nazareth, a man attested by miracles, a man sent from God, a prophet and a teacher. And if they can get this man, this paralytic man to Jesus, there's hope for his healing. We have no idea how the paralytic man felt about this, but they had faith for this man's healing. And so they come to Jesus and the crowd's already there and they can't get in the door and they can't get in the window and they can't get to Jesus. And so somebody, 
somebody has the idea to get him up on the roof. Most of these homes in this particular area would have had outside staircases that would go up to an open roof that was flat where people could escape from the heat of the house. There would be a covering. And so you'd have kind of like your own porch deck. And so they go up there and they begin to remove the roof tiles. And then they lower the paralytic through the roof onto the ground. Now I'm imagining there's some rope involved. I don't know what this guy was saying or how he was feeling being lowered down right into the very presence of Jesus. They interrupt the the gathering. They interrupt Jesus' sermon. They're doing whatever it takes to get this man to Jesus. And I love Jesus' response in verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And now this scene goes from dramatic to either miraculous or blasphemous. Jesus does not say, I see your faith and take up your mat and walk. He's going to say that in a minute, but he starts with son. He identifies this, this man, paralytic, loved by God. He gives this endearing term, relational, that you belong to me. You are one of mine. I'm sure this guy dealt with wondering if God had abandoned him, cursed him, how he, how he felt about him, all those things coming into question. And the first word out of Jesus' mouth to this paralytic is son, son. And then seeing faith toward Jesus, that he has the capacity and the power to intervene in this situation. He says the most important thing, actually the greater need that this man has beyond even being able to have use of his limbs is to have his sins forgiven, to be restored completely to God, to be cleansed and purified and made a temple for God's very presence. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is always working on multiple levels. And so he not only cares about this particular man who's identified as a son. He not only is celebrating the faith of that, this group of people that has brought him to Jesus and removed every obstacle to get him into Jesus' presence. He's also thinking of the crowd who's watching, not only those who are coming to hear Jesus teach, but those critics of Jesus who are scrutinizing every word he says. And so he uses this opportunity to reveal himself to the crowd. And so we see in verse six that some of the scribes have an internal response. Check it out. Now, some of the scribes, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Notice they won't say it out loud, but this is what they're thinking. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's the right question with the wrong heart. Who can forgive sins? God alone. This is about who Jesus is, what power he has, but they are standing in judgment over Jesus because they have not declared Jesus to be the prophet. They have not declared Jesus to be the Christ. They are the judges of Jesus and not actual receivers and believers. Now, I just wanna say right here because it's online and I have all the time in the world because where are we going? I just wanna take a minute because there's this common misperception, particularly in the church and particularly with people who are committed to truth. These are scribes. These are scribes who carefully and meticulously copy the scriptures, who maintain the tradition around their belief, who teach them, uh, who are like uh, the stewards of God's truth. And so people, even in the Christian church, which is a little different, people in the Christian church committed to truth, committed to the scriptures, can easily develop uh, the same kind of scrutiny, the same kind of critical spirit, the same kind of, I don't know that that's 
that's exactly right. And this is not a spiritual gift. This is a sign of unbelief and immaturity because God will blow your categories and God will blow the box that you put him in. And you got we gotta be people who let God reveal God and not our preconception preconceived notions. And so I've run in circles with people who think that they have this like spiritual gift of discernment and it's their job to scrutinize everything, judge everything, make decisions, proclaim condemnations over this and that, and God would never, and God doesn't, and you shouldn't believe that, and you shouldn't act this way, and you shouldn't do these things. And that is not a virtue. It is not. So we want to be a people who are open to the spirit of God, who are constrained by the word of God, but who don't create categories and then fix God in them. And so we don't want to miss God at work because we have become the judge of God. But I love that Jesus doesn't let their quiet criticism and their thoughts and questions and their judgments and conclusions stop him from his public ministry or for the ministry he wants to bring to this particular man. So in verse eight, it says, and immediately one of Mark's favorite words, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them. So they have a thought, Jesus has a word. Why do you question these things in your heart? And that's actually the operative question. That is the diagnostic question. If they would have answered this question, they could have come to the conclusion that they were standing in judgment over Jesus instead of letting Jesus be the revealer of truth to them. Why do you question these things in your heart? Think about it. And then Jesus says, but which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, this this uh, potentially blasphemous thing that no one can verify, that no one can judge, that happens between a person and God uh, on the inside and relationally, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. A physical miracle, demonstrable, visible, provable in the presence of all people. And then he says in verse 10, but that you may know, not think, not believe, not decide, not judge, that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Look at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Never before seen footage, jaws on the floor. Jesus demonstrates its power, not only over the body and disease and demons, he will show his power over death. Uh, But here he reveals the nature and character of his ability to forgive sins, to reunite lost men and women to God, to cleanse us, to be a home for his Holy Spirit. And no one had ever seen anything like it. The scribes had never seen it. The Jews of the day had never seen it. The disciples had never seen it. Everybody present had never seen anything like this. And Jesus demonstrates his power to forgive and his power to heal. Now, what does this have to do with prayer? Why did I pick this story? First and foremost, I just wanted to show you a fresh reminder of who our Jesus is. As we try to grow as people of care and compassion, we are gonna be confronted with impossible situations. And just like this paralytic man, we're out of options. No one can help him, no one can heal him. 
He's being cared for 24-7. Uh, this is a guy whose life is difficult, whose, whose, whose people who love him are impacted significantly. I mean, this is a, this is a terrible, long-lasting situation, a situation of suffering, a situation of loss, a situation of, of crisis and, and heartache. And so in these kinds of situations, we've got to remember that we are the people who have access to a savior and a healer and a king, someone with authority to forgive sins and to heal bodies. This is why it's so important for us to pray before we act, to pray before we move, because we don't have everything that it takes, but God does. And so we ought to be people whose first impulse is to pray. In every situation where there is care, we wanna move forward to say, God help, you are the one who can provide. You are the one who can intervene. You are the one who can heal. And so this is what it means to be a culture of care is to be a culture of prayer. Prayer makes a way where there is no way. You see how faith toward God begins to tear down obstacles? I love that these guys tore the, the roof apart. I love that. Uh, in in uh, previous years, when I studied this passage and preached this passage, I just had to imagine that uh, one of these guys was a roofer, that, that he was like, okay, we can't get in the door, we can't get in the window, we can't get through the crowd. I know a way. And they got them on the roof and they start tearing the roof apart. And so they are removing every obstacle. Brothers and sisters, prayer removes every obstacle and gives us access to God's presence and his power. This is what it means for us to be a kingdom of priests to God, ambassadors for heaven, intercessors, to remove every obstacle. When someone comes in and says, I'm in an impossible situation, say, well, I know the God that makes the impossible possible. Let's go to him in prayer. Let's tear the roof off this thing and let's ascend. Let's fix our eyes on the God who is and the God who can. And so we wanna be a people passionate about prayer, engaging with our faith to do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. I love then verse 12 that it says, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. I mean, think about this. When Jesus acts, when Jesus answers prayer, he makes a way where there was no way. Notice these guys couldn't get the paralytic man in as everyone's acting out of self-interest, trying to get there. There's no way to get through a crowd. But when he experienced the power of God, the crowds parted so that he could walk right out the front door. This is what prayer does. It makes a way for us where there was previously no way. And so let us grow and let us stretch and let us engage our faith collectively to become a people of prayer, to do what it takes to get people to Jesus. And notice how, how prayer has a way of bringing people together. We have this little, this little group of people committed to this man's healing. We have these four guys carrying him to Jesus, tearing the roof apart, getting him down there. This is the same type of spirit of prayer. And I'll tell you, now we've been disconnected these three weeks. We haven't been in church. We haven't been in our regular rhythm. I haven't seen most of my friends. We haven't hugged and handshaked and high-fived and, and, and chatted. We've, we've missed those weekly rhythmic opportunities. And yet through this little Delta variant spike we're all experiencing, we've been praying and, and, and I feel closer to people who I haven't seen simply because I've been praying nonstop for their healing and deliverance and comfort and provision. And so here we are having this opportunity through prayer to grow together I mentioned this already in the series, but it's been said you grow, you grow with, to, and toward those you pray. You pray for people, you grow with them. You pray to God, you grow closer to God. 
you, grow, you pray with other people. Presently, you grow with those people. And so we pray as families and we pray for our families and friends and we pray to our God our, and Father. And so we wanna grow in relationship with those we pray to and with and for. So prayer, prayer, prayer. I love that Luke in his version of this story adds the detail in verse 17b. It says, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Jesus didn't always heal. Sometimes the power of the Lord was not with him to heal and he wasn't doing those kinds of miracles. And yet God in his sovereign will moves at times to bring healing. And so we always ask, we don't know if, if someone is gonna experience the power of the Lord present with them to bring healing. I think this is why 1 Corinthians 14 talks about gifts of healing, that they are occasional, that they come, that they are things to be received at particular times. There aren't, uh, there aren't residential healers. I don't believe the scripture doesn't say that. And even with Jesus, there's something about, he knew today's a day for healing. So he knew when he said, son, your sins are forgiven, that God was gonna demonstrate his power to bring healing. And so we wanna be people responsive to the spirit of God. What is God doing now? but we want, to, we want to pray and ask God for everything. He says, you have not because you ask not. And so let us be a people of prayer. Let us be a people of prayer. And so I want to start with prayer, 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 prayer. But I also want to talk about practicalities. I don't know how many of you are listening to this sermon and you're preoccupied with something and it's not all the details we've been covering. You're thinking to yourself, what about the roof? What happened to the roof? The passage just moves on and the roof is left open in the story. Now I have to imagine if there's a guy who had the, the foresight and the thought to tear the roof off, hopefully he had the skill to be able to put the roof back on and hopefully that roof was uh, put back together. But maybe there was always a patch right there. Maybe there was always a hole in the roof. But I wanna talk just for a second about practicalities about the roof, because we can always access God in prayer. All that takes is a willing spirit, faith toward God, even feeble faith, uh, people coming together. But there's things that have to be done. If we're gonna care for people, we have to make decisions, allocate resources, uh, consider all variables, make wise choices. And so we wanna be people of purposeful practicality as well. And one of the ways we can diagnose that we're getting the cart before the horse is when we make prayer kind of the consolation. I don't know if you've experienced this before. Sometimes a situation comes up and our first impulse is to assess, to go, what are all the moving parts? What are, what's the need and what's the time frame? And how do we, what could we do? And what are the resources? And then we assess and then maybe we act. Maybe we go, okay, well, after a situational triage, uh, this seems like the best course of action and this is the resources we have available. And then that doesn't always meet the need. And so we can't do this or money won't buy that or we can't, we can't make this happen. And so prayer becomes this kind of stopgap between what we can do and what the need still is. And if we are working in that direction, then we're missing the point. If we're working from assess, act, and then ask, we are not understanding the power of prayer. So we wanna flip that on its head. We wanna start with ask, God, here's a situation before we do any assessment, before we do any acting, let's go to God. Let's ask him for his involvement, his wisdom, his provision, his healing, his divine intervention. And then let's assess the situation and then let's act in faith and, and by the Holy Spirit. And so this is a way we can get this wrong. So let's be a culture of prayer. And then let's talk about practicalities because a culture of care is also a culture of share. So turn to first Timothy chapter 
5, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm using this verse not because it is uh, specific to widows, but not only because of that. And there's an element of caring for widows in the, in the early church. And we want to understand that. But as an example of the way that the apostle Paul and God by the Holy Spirit giving us this letter is going to inform some categories for us about the practicalities of care. And so let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 3. And I'm going to take another sip of my coffee. 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 3, practicalities. It says in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. And so this is a new category of thought as the apostle Paul is instructing young pastor Timothy about how to lead and establish and strengthen churches of appointing over overseers and deacons built on the foundation of the good news about Jesus and his transformation, walking in humility, preaching with boldness. And then he talks about how to engage with different people in appropriate ways with respect and honor. And then he takes this word honor and he uses it to talk about financial provision. We know this because also in five, chapter five, Apostle Paul instructs Timothy uh, for a defense of paying your preaching pastors. And so if you have elders or pastors who are preaching, it says in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And this is a euphemistic way of speaking about paying them and not just enough, but honoring them with a, a, a livable salary of an of a honor. Like this is an important aspect of ministry and the, and the role of the church. And so this is about, this is about uh money. This is about remuneration. And so we see that in the verses that followed all the way down to 25, but here he's talking about providing uh, at least minimal sustenance for widows. And so we see in verse three, honor widows who are truly widows. But then he starts to add all these practical details, verse four, but qualification, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. And so this is intensely wise and practical. So yes, we want to honor, financially provide for widows who are truly widows who have no one. But if you have a widow who's legitimately a widow, her husband's passed, she's alone, has no source of income, but she has children or grandchildren present, let them be the ones to take care of her. Let them be the ones to grow in godliness, to honor their parents or grandparents, to make some return for the investment that this particular woman has made in them generationally. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. Verse five, she is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God. So this is a kind of an if scenario. Now, if we're not talking about a woman who has access to help from her family, but if she's truly a widow left all alone, all by herself, and she has set her hope on God, continues in, notice the centrality of prayer in this woman's life and her qualifications, continues in supplications and prayers day and night. This is a dependent woman. This is an others focused woman. This is a faithful, devoted woman. But verse six, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So we're not talking about a woman uh, who is godless and self-focused. This is not something you can help. No amount of support is going to deliver that woman into a right relationship with God. It won't make a difference, Paul is saying to Timothy. Verse seven says, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
believer. And so here we have the apostle Paul saying, listen, this is the primary, primary responsibility of households, of families. And so if there's a widow, it falls to her children and their families to care for her, to bring her into their home, to provide her with minimal uh, sustenance so that she can live, to take care of her. She has a roof over her head and food in her belly. And this is the, the, the role of the family first. And so the church is not supposed to step in to empower a family to not care for uh, a widow that's a part of their family. And so here we have some very specific practicalities. Now, the specificity continues in verse nine. Let a widow be enrolled that is put on a list. And so we've got some structure here. If she is not less than 60 years of age, so there's a minimum age requirement, having been the wife of one husband, which is a euphemism of a faithful woman in her relationship. So not an adulterous woman in her, in, in her life, that she's not a cheater and she runs off and she's in this. This is a woman of character, faithful, committed. Verse 10, and having a reputation for good works. And so more character qualifications. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints and has, check it out, cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. Notice the apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, yes, the church should be caring for the most vulnerable and those who are alone, but, but we wanna have both an impulse and a limitation that results in the good of all people, that results in the good of families who are called by God to care for their own, yes, who, who, are, who are willing to say no to a situation that is, could be destructive or a, an undue burden on the church, all the while only empowering self-centered behavior. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is a significant amount of character assessment that goes into these practicalities. I mean, this is not an equal opportunity program. Uh, there's discrimination that is happening here based on uh, this woman's life. And so you see how much evaluation goes into this impulse to care. We talked about this in the priorities sermon, series, sermon in the series to say, listen, we have to run some situational trials. We have to take in all, all the factors into consideration. We wanna make a wise choice. But notice that even with all these limitations, even with these restrictions, and they're very strongly worded, the goal here is that the church would fulfill its mission, that uh, people in vulnerable positions who are genuine in their faith toward God would be taken care of, that families would understand the value of taking care of each other and, and the, the idea that this is what it means to be a Christian is to live a sacrificial life toward your own first and then outward from there. But if there are these women who meet these uh, age requirements and character assessments and have demonstrated care for other people, then, then the, the church should do everything necessary to make sure this woman is cared for. And that's beautiful. That's just a, the heart of God. And so it's not something to be abused. It's not something to be taken advantage of, but this is something that really take into consideration. In verse 11, the restrictions get stronger and more pronounced. Look at this. But refuse to enroll younger widows, that's the under 60. Why? For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. I think the apostle Paul is speaking to probably a situation that actually occurred here. And maybe there was a woman who came onto the kind of church roles was being cared for, but wasn't ready to be alone, wasn't ready to be uh, a widow, wasn't ready to enter into that kind of like devoted nun-like existence and had this desire and maybe moved into uh, a unthought 
through relationship and and moved out and ran off with somebody and ultimately abandoned uh, the faith. Now, it's not saying every woman would do that, but Paul's saying you have these younger women who are, are, are widowed, but they're just ready to just kind of enter into this early widow phase. Maybe they're not ready for that. And so don't allow that to happen. Um, we don't want to empower something that ultimately isn't helpful and that a woman feels like she has to leave because she's taken advantage of this thing and then she changed her mind. And so it complicates the situation. And so this isn't, this isn't a kind of verse that can apply to every single situation exactly, but it, it communicates a principle about the help that we give people being the help that they actually need. And that's becoming a reoccurring theme. Verse 13 gets crazy. Paul says, beside that, these younger women learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have every younger widow marry, bear children, manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander for some have already strayed after Satan. I mean, you can't say this stuff anymore. Uh, the American public no longer has ears for stereotypes. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage. Paul's saying, listen, we've seen these young women who lose their first husband and they just start doing nothing because they don't have to work and they've got money. And what do they do? They just busy around and they, they just meddle in things and they start talking bad about people and become slanderers. And then the enemy gets a foothold. Let's get these women married, having more kids, taking on stepkids, working at home. He's saying the devil's workshop, remember, idle hands. And so this is bad for everybody when you make this wrong choice, this practical choice to try to be helpful, to try to care for these women when it's not what they need and it's not good for them. And so here, here's Paul just making these generalized kind of stereotypical remarks about what these kind of middle-aged single women are, do when Satan gets a hold of them. Man, it's so kind of refreshing to be able to say stuff like this because now if you say something like this, you're a sexist and you're a racist. We don't know how you're a racist. Somehow you're a racist because everybody's a racist that says anything stereotypical. But Paul's not afraid. He says, verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. The King James Version says men or women. Not sure what textual variant is there, but let's let the people who are related to widows care for them. Maybe it's temporarily until they remarry. Maybe it's long-term and let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. It's funny to me when you think about um, just the, the nature of men and women, you know, I heard a comedian talking about getting married young and he was saying, I went from my mom straight to my wife. And so uh, I never had a period of time where I didn't have some woman saying, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and then he says, now I have a daughter, so I'll never know what that's like. And I think we, we men, we need a woman around willing to say, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And I think stereotypically, at least, uh, women need a man around to say, I wouldn't say that if I were you. I wouldn't have that conversation. I wouldn't say it that way. I wouldn't let that out. Uh, now, this thing's funny that the apostle Paul brings that out in this passage. Uh, we really do need each other. God made us to be married and to have a person different from us, compliment us and help us to not do dumb things or to not say unhelpful things. Now, we covered a bunch of stuff in this passage. We looked at some of the things it says, but really this is about practicalities. This is about wise stewardship of limited resources. Churches aren't, aren't rolling in it. There's not tons and tons of extra money. And so our resources are limited and we wanna make choices that reflect God's priorities. And so we pay 
preaching pastors worthy of double honor because they keep the, the vision moving forward. They keep the church equipped. They keep everyone sharp. They keep us coming back to God. Uh, this is important to the mission, but so are caring for widows. You notice the type of woman who's gonna be empowered here is gonna be a woman who's, who's set her hope on God and continues in supplications through prayer, day and night. This is a woman of power, a woman of prayer. She's not self-indulgent. No, uh, she is above reproach. This is a, a woman who is committed to washing the feet of, of others, who cares for other people, who knows how to raise and rear children and provide counseling and mentorship and to show hospitality and who is devoted to every good work. This is the kind of woman you want around in your church. And so God says, let's put our resources where it's gonna make the most impact not just for the person, not just for the pastor or for the widow, but for the church and for the mission and for the purposes of God. And so this, every time we encounter an opportunity to care, we don't wanna just throw money at it. There's gonna be times where people have made a series of terrible choices that have landed them in an impossible situation and throwing a little bit of money at something is just wasting that money. We'll do nothing to change the situation. And so sometimes we have to be discriminating and we have to say no. And while we are committed to being a church that creates a culture of care and a culture of prayer and a culture of share, we also wanna be a wise steward of the resources that God has entrusted to our care. And sometimes that's gonna mean saying no. We also uh, need to recognize where the support is gonna go. We wanna put the support in the biggest assets. We have a very small staff. We've evaluated what is the most needed and we have put those resources where we feel like in this season, uh, we're making the biggest impact for the mission and ministry of Christ Church and the kingdom of heaven. We wanna do that as it results in care and benevolence as well. And then we, the details matter. Um, this is not a one-size-fits-all thing. The details matter. The situation, the person, the age, the decisions, the history, the, the response, the ability. We want to consider all of those things in that situational triage. And, and I say this because you've probably seen this happen. You know, in the same way that governments don't tend to give you the power back when you give it to them. When the government says, okay, we're in a crisis, we need this power. We need to take this right from you. We need to have this control to be able to do this thing. Rarely, if ever, do they then afterwards say, okay, we're not gonna do that anymore. You can have this back, crisis averted, everything's over. Let's go back to the way things used to be. No, the power always gets held and the next crisis adds more and the next crisis adds more. The same thing tends to happen with people who become dependent on financial support. They don't tend to let go of that financial support. People who end up receiving food stamps typically end up living in a lifestyle that depends on those food stamps. People that are receiving an alimony, I've seen this so many times, people that won't get remarried to the person they're in a relationship with because it'll negatively impact their financial situation because all people have this tendency to, once there's a financial support, depend on it and then not let it go. And so Paul's saying to Timothy, you gotta make really smart choices about who you're going to create this financial support in the long run. And sometimes care can be the same way. Um, a lot of times money can meet a need, close a gap, but it won't solve a problem. And so we wanna make sure that we are being practical, that we are being generous, that we are committed to sharing, but that we're also operating in a way that keeps the mission that God has first and foremost, that starts not with how can we help with money, but let's go to God in prayer. Let's ask for his wisdom, his intervention, the, the, the miraculous, and then let's assess and then let's act. So 
That's why we want to spend a little bit of time in this series on practicalities. And this may not apply to many people. You may be bored. You may have already turned off the stream. I don't know. But as we build a culture of care, this is an important thing for all of our Christchurch people to know, to take into consider, to set an expectation for. Now, I want to close just reminding everybody about God's care plan. God's care plan. Do you know that becoming a disciple of Jesus means that you receive one of the benefits of a care plan? It's not always a health care plan, but it's God's care plan. And that care plan oftentimes comes through the church. The church is a huge part of God's care plan for you. You don't have to sign up for it. There is no open enrollment period. It's an immediate benefit when you come in. And this is what we're trying to build as a church, a culture of care that every single person is covered by, that every single person contributes to. And so how should we care? How should we care as we consider God's care plan? We should care in the same way that God cares. Do you know that God's care plan is open 24 seven, 365 through prayer? He's always awake. He does not slumber or sleep. He is always thinking about you and he is always eager to hear your prayers. He knows what you need before you even ask. And he's eager to answer every prayer, especially those ones that line up with his big picture mission and put on display his power to forgive sins. And so let's be people that go to God in prayer. Step number one, remember that God is the God who calls who knows your name, who calls you son or daughter. He's the God who saves. He's the God who forgives. He's the God who gives gifts to people to be a blessing to others and to bring the manifestation of the spirit. He's the God that empowers the church to care for others, to give us the wisdom to know how to act and when to act and what resources to allocate. He's the God that lets us act to bring care, his care and wisdom and good news into the world. And so this is what we're aiming to be. And this is God's care plan for his people and for the world through the church. And just like first Timothy that starts with Jesus at the center, Jesus will always be at the center of everything we do. We will not become distracted to be the most caring church and to focus on care first. No, we focus on Jesus first. And it's because of who Jesus is and what Jesus does that we get to the right and appropriate expression of care. It's because of who Jesus is that we bring leadership and structure and plans and training to be who God's called us to be because Jesus is at the center and he must stay at the center. If I was here with you, I'd say, can I get an amen? And I hear you amening. I hear you amening. We are a church with Jesus at the center, but who are also empowered by the spirit. Let us not forget that his spirit is within every single one of us. When we join our spirits together in prayer, we are accessing the throne of God, but we are also being stirred and filled and led and directed and empowered by the spirit of God. This is not a natural plan. This is a supernatural care plan. We are being shepherded by our father. We have a good father who's committed to training us, maturing us, mentoring us, helping us, uh, transforming our thinking and feeling and changing us to be more like Jesus. And as he does these things, father, son, and spirit, what happens is that we become the body of Christ, the extension of Jesus' very care. He becomes our head and our brain and our director. And we become that which carries out his mission, his kingdom. And this is what we are committed to. Let's remember prayer and practicalities. Let's break down every obstacle with faith to get people to Jesus. Let's start there. And let's not worry about the roof. 
let's not worry about the roof at all. I had this awesome experience this week. We've been on kind of lockdown and stuck in our home together a lot. And Molly, our six-year-old, she was talking to me about something being ruined um, by her little brother. And she came up to me and she, she showed me this ruined little art thing that she had made. And she said, dad, you know how you always say people are more important than things? <laughs> and I said, praise Jesus. My six-year-old is listening. I only have to say it 10 times a day, but she's getting it. Because I always say to the kids, whenever they're fighting over something or they're angry about something, I'll say, oh, guys, this, this object that you're upset about, this is not more important than the person that you're angry with. People are more important than things. And I'll teach them, we use things to love people. We do not use people to get things. And I say this all the time. And Molly in her sweet little six-year-old heart comes to me and says, dad, you know how you always say people are more important than things. And she was able to not be angry at her brother and not uh, have retribution towards her brother. And this is a huge part of this picture, you know? Um, as we provide, let's let uh, the patch in the roof, let's let the damage that was done remind us of what's more important. Uh, it's going to cost us something. There's going to be mistakes made along the way, but let's look to those things and not be fixated on systems, not be fixated on dollars, but to be fixated on Jesus and Jesus' love for people. Let's leave the plastered scar in the ceiling to remind us of the power of the son of man, not only to heal paralytics, to say, get up, take your bed and go home, but to say, son, your sins are forgiven. We are committed to seeing salvation reach every single person within our reach. We are committed to showing people who Jesus is, to bringing them into an experience of him. And then, Lastly, we want to just be practical. We want to have a care plan that works. We want to create margin in our church budget and our personal finances and our time management so that we have space to care. And then as a church, we want to identify leaders and empower people. And so this is my final appeal to you in this series. If you haven't already, go to our website, go to the care tab, sign up to be on the care team. Uh, we're going to work with everyone. We're getting back to business as usual. We're going to have some gatherings. We're going to talk about care. We're going to give you a chance to try different teams and be a part of different things. But it's important that you try. We were playing a puzzle. We we're putting a puzzle together a week or two ago with the kids and Julian was trying to force this puzzle piece and it wouldn't fit. I knew it wouldn't fit. I'm trying to tell him where it goes and he gets so frustrated, he throws it in the trash can. And I'm saying, buddy, we're gonna need that piece. There's a place for that piece. And uh, maybe you'll have that experience. Maybe you'll come be a part of the care team and you'll go, this is definitely not for me. I am definitely a budgets and spreadsheet person. Uh, I'm not supposed to be a part of this. That's okay. You don't have to throw your piece away if it doesn't work. We're gonna put it where it works because there's a piece for every single person, including you. But let's give this a shot. Let's be a part of what matters to God. Let's identify leaders, empower people and all do our part. Let me pray for us as we close. God, I thank you for every person who's tuned in to be a part of this live stream today. God, I thank you that you have a word from your heart to ours. God, I thank you. I thank you that you are a God who saves, that you are the God who forgives, who cleanses, who calls us son and daughter, reminds us who we truly are. And I thank you that you have power over sin and sickness, over death and disease and demons, that you are the God who delivers. Lord, help us to be ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors of heaven, a kingdom of priests to bring people through prayer to our powerful savior. God, help, help us. 
And Lord, I give us wisdom to know as we build this care team and as we establish these rules and as we consider each situation, as we take into account all these factors, God, we wanna be, we wanna be making wise choices about the stewardship that you've entrusted to our care. We wanna keep our focus on Jesus and our focus on caring for people and doing what's best and meeting needs and helping people where their need truly lies. And we rely 100% on your Holy Spirit for that. God, help us as a church, help us as a staff and a leadership team, as a board. And God, I pray that you would, that you would right now call and speak to every single person who is near to you, but does not know you, who is close to the kingdom, but not in. God, anybody who's listening all the way through to this point in the service, God, I pray that if you're moving in their heart, that they would, that they would give their allegiance to you, that they would invite you into their heart to be the king, that they would receive your offer of forgiveness, that they would bow their head in humility and utter those words, God, help me. God, save me. Be my God, be my father, be my savior. I know that you respond to that every single time. God, we thank you for what you're doing unhindered by our in-person gatherings being halted. And Lord, we excitedly anticipate being back in your presence with each other together next Sunday. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' mighty name. All God's people said, amen, amen.